Hello, and welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. Today, at long last, we finally get to begin the Iliad. No more preface, no more introduction, no more shilly-shallying. Let's finally start reading this text and see what it has to say to us. Um, and today's a bit weird, as far as that's concerned. On the one hand, we're not reading a whole heck of a lot uh, compared to some of the later readings that we're going to conduct, like we have a mere 50 pages here. Um, on the other hand, we have a lot to discuss, just because there's a ton of setup going on here. Um, there's a ton of weird stuff happening. We have to get a lot of the characters' relationships straight. We have to figure out what the heck is going on between the gods here. Um, like, there's a lot of moving parts, even at this stage of the game. And this is largely attributed to something that has been sort of examined and discussed about Homer for literally thousands of years at this point, like even in that Aristotle's Poetics he is pointing this stuff out. Um, Homer starts in what we call in medias res, i.e. he begins his story in the middle of the story. The Trojan War has been going on for a while now. Um, in fact, like we're told explicitly when Odysseus is sort of like talking to, talking up the troops in chapter two, um, that we're nine years in to a ten-year war. Um, so we're definitely on the back end of things, but we don't get to see, like, the first person set foot on Trojan soil. We do not get to see, you know, all the preliminary stuff with the Greeks, them setting up their encampments, them, you know, invading the local environs and taking stuff from other islands. Um, all that is presumably in the past. Uh, this is the end game. Now, on the other hand, don't take the time too seriously. Um, in all likelihood, especially some of these early scenes are associated more with the earlier parts of the war, like the big mustering scene that we get in, in Book 2 here, um, the feud between Achilles and Agamemnon, even you know when we get to like the, the duel between Menelaus and Paris, all of that, if there was a Trojan War and in the more robust version of the epic story, probably would have occurred in the earlier part of the Trojan War, not in year 9. Um, likewise, for all that this is apparently year nine, you'll notice from our discussion of the reading of, uh, of Apollodorus and, and sort of like the outline of the Trojan War myth, um, a lot happens in year nine and ten, much more than seemed to be the case from years like two through eight. Um, somehow, in this last year and a half of fighting, we get Achilles killing Hector, um, Achilles being killed by Paris, like everybody getting the or Philoctetes and the bow of Heracles back. Somehow they go back to like Achilles's home and pick up Neoptolemus. Like all of this apparently happens in year nine and ten, all leading up to, and then they build the Trojan horse, and then they finally get into the walls, and then they finally destroy the city, and then they like sit around dividing the spoils, and then and then and then and then and then and then. Um, don't take it seriously. Um, on the one hand, I want to emphasize that like we shouldn't be digging around for plot holes in this text. Like I said before, the Greeks are not interested in continuity. It's not important to them. Um, like I said before, you know, multiple characters are going to die multiple times in the course of this book. It's it's just not interesting to sort of like fix all the plot holes and make sure that everything makes rational, logical sense. Um, there's no mythological canon here. Um, the Greeks are totally fine with internal contradiction. Uh, and, you know, again, so much of this myth is 
told in different ways every single different time, so it does. It really does not matter to them. Um, but on the other hand, I do want to recognize that there is logic underpinning what's going on here. Um, the characters behave rationally. Uh, they behave like human beings do. And in fact, that's one of the things that Homer has been very much praised for. One of the reasons why he's stayed current for 3,000 years. Um, when you see Achilles mouthing off to Agamemnon, you can imagine that happening in your own backyard. Sure, like, it might not be, you know, larger than life Achilles talking to Lord of all of the Greeks, Agamemnon, but, you know, it could just be a little kid mouthing off to his parents or... It could be, you know, an employee talking back to their employer. Like, the dynamics here, the power dynamics, the social dynamics, the psychological dynamics, haven't changed in 3,000 years. Um, you still get petulant underlings talking to incompetent authority figures. It's a thing. Um, and that's kind of at the heart of what's going on here. Much as Homer does not care about the logistics of having all this shit happen, in year 9 and 10 of a 10-year-long war, which is itself, like, probably not something that could have existed in the ancient Greek world that Homer is writing about here. On the other hand, he's very keenly interested in people wanting things and that causing other things to happen. Even amongst the gods, you'll see that they behave rationally. They have their own desires, their own agendas that come into conflict with one another. And that's what defines their interactions. Um, so, again, don't think about this from a sort of left-brain, super-rational, super-logical perspective. I think I've got that right. Think about this from the emotional perspective. Think about this from the psychological perspective. Think about the sort of human knowledge, insight, and wisdom that Homer is putting on display here. Uh, because even in book one and two, we see a lot of that. Um, but we still need to back up. Like, as much as I do want to talk about Agamemnon and Achilles and, you know, all the other characters, we need to start even earlier than that here. Um, yes, we start in medias res, but we also start with that passage that we talked about extensively last time, and I don't want to, like, belabor the point here. Um, but as much as we talked about it, and we talked about sort of its form and the, the specific wording, I actually want to talk about the themes today. Um, one of the things that we're going to spend a lot of time discussing in Homer is his themes and his values. Um, Homer is interested in certain parts of Greek life more than he is in others. Like, much as he is absolutely keen to show us, like, snapshot slice-of-life images of his characters interacting with each other, it's also clear that he's got bigger things on his mind. Homer wants to write about big-picture ideas and the way that they sort of interact with the Greeks on a sort of universal basis. Um, and on, this manifests in a couple of ways. First, we have the themes. Like, Homer is discussing how these things work, and, of course, most importantly is this issue of rage. Um, Homer is very keen to talk about rage, anger, and how it sort of influences these characters, and we will want to track that as we go along. Um, but we're also going to look at the way that Homer sort of tells us about morality. Um, we'll see Homer's prescriptions to us about how we should interact with the world, how we should understand rage, yes, but also how we should react to it. Um, the characters are presented here for examination. They are presented as role models. We are meant to look at them and say to ourselves, 
is this person being good or bad? Is this person making the right decision or the wrong decision? Should we be like Agamemnon or Achilles or Odysseus or any of the characters that we run into here? Um, this is an important function of the epic storytelling that we're going to see in Homer, as well as mythological storytelling in general. Um, many of the Greeks even acknowledge this in their own time. Like, Plato especially has a lot of nasty things to say about Homer because he thinks that Homer is actually propagating some really negative ideas about the gods here, and, you know, we can discuss that in its own time. It's clear, though, that Plato sees these as educational materials. Um, when you tell these stories, the children who are listening are going to think about them, going to model their lives after them, going to be seriously imprinted by them. Um, the same way that, you know, in our own time, we tell our children to, like, watch and admire Superman or Batman or Spider-Man or whoever, and as much as those, you know, important moral truths, like, with great power comes great responsibility, are meant to sort of resonate with us, um meant to sort of guide children in, in their development and their instruction, so too are Achilles and Agamemnon and Hector and Odysseus held up as role models for Greek children. Um, Homer is well aware that his audience consists of a whole bunch of different people with a wide variety of different experiences, and he is effectively telling them how to live. Um, so we need to be aware of both of these things as we go through this book. And indeed, our first paper is going to deal with both of these things as we go through this book. Um, so be on the lookout. What is Homer saying about these issues, about the cosmic truths of the universe? And how is he telling us to deal with them? How is he instructing us so we can be better Greeks, better citizens, better soldiers, and so on and so forth? Um, and notice that the first thing that he has, he has to say about rage is not at all positive. Again, that first paragraph is a real downer beginning to this book. Rage, sin goddess Achilles' rage, black and murderous that cost the Greeks incalculable pain, pitched countless souls of heroes into Hades' dark, and left their bodies to rot as feasts for dogs and birds as Zeus's will was done. Like, that's a really dark outlook here. Maybe darker than you would expect from a 3,000-year-old text by the Greeks, you know, that bastion of civilization and rationality and philosophy and science and so on and so forth. Like, Homer starts this off by saying Achilles' rage caused all of this pain, all of this death, left bodies out to die for dogs and birds to gnaw at them. Like, this rage caused great suffering. It was terrible really hurt the Greeks in a variety of different ways. So the first glimpse we're getting of rage here is that it's very negative. It is a bad thing. It is a destructive thing. Um, and while that's not the, the end-all and be-all of rage in this story, again, like keep an eye out as it sort of crops up again and again, you'll notice that it is overwhelmingly fairly negative here. Homer has a pretty dark view of the whole Trojan War, much as he does spend, you know, thousands of lines writing this poem about it, he doesn't tend to think that this is a really good thing. Um, and the Greeks would agree with him. Like, generally speaking, the Greeks understood the Trojan War to be this tragedy brought about by Helen. Either Helen's 
manipulativeness and deliberately going off with Paris or her beauty and causing Paris to run away with her. Either way, the Greeks kind of see this as those damn women are causing all of these problems, ca causing this war to take place. And you'll see that Homer isn't quite as direct about that. Like, his take is not like Apollodorus's, like, those damn women are ruining it for everyone. Um, but he does lean into that a little bit. Like, notice that the big feud that takes place here between Achilles and Agamemnon is, shocker, over a woman. Um, Agamemnon is not allowed to have his prize, Briseis, so he takes Achilles' prize, Briseis. Both egos are thoroughly bruised. They practically come to blows, and Achilles goes and sulks in his tent for the duration of this book, it seems. Um, but we'll get to that in its own right. Suffice it to say that Homer is putting the spotlight rather than on Helen and Briseis and the ladies and how troublesome they are, he's putting the spotlight right at the beginning of this book on rage, the men's reaction to this, the passion that overmastered them, this anger that took control of them. Um, this is what caused incalculable pain. This is what pitched countless souls of heroes into Hades' dark. This is what left bodies to rot as feasts for dogs and birds. But notice that I've been kind of deliberately omitting that last part here, as Zeus's will was done. If anything, that implies an even darker outlook, and something that we're going to also run into a lot in this text. As much as I've been stressing here, rage caused all this, Achilles' bad behavior is doing this, his anger is what's destroying all these Greeks and causing them all this pain, notice that this is all with Zeus's seal of approval, as Zeus's will was done. This is intentional. Like, this is planned. This is part of the grand trajectory of, of history as figured out by the gods. Now, this is kind of complicated in its own right, and again, we're going to see a lot of glimpses of fate, which is kind of the theme that Homer is introducing here um, throughout this text as well. Like, we're going to see a lot of cases where, like, everything kind of stops and something has to happen. Um, Patroclus has to die. Sarpedon has to die. Hector has to die. Achilles eventually has to die. Um, all of this is set in stone. And what's more, this is part of the plan. This is good, question mark? Orderly, question mark? Like, it's not entirely clear what the what what the sort of normative value of Zeus coming in and saying this is what's going to happen, this person is going to die, and then that's going to cause this to happen, which is going to cause this to happen, which is going to cause this to happen, and at the end of the day, all of it sucks, but eh, what are you going to do? I'm Zeus, fuck you. Um, this is a tough thing to wrap our brains around because our view of the universe doesn't tend to be quite as fatalistic as the Greeks are. Like, we have a much more robust notion of free will. Like, as much as in the last, say, 50 years, perhaps only in the last 10 years, like, a lot of people have kind of given up on human goodness or human decency or even free will to some degree, basically arguing that, like, we are all basically really complicated biological adding machines. Um, 
generally speaking, we believe that people are free to do things. We hold them accountable for when they do bad things. We, you know, lock them up, throw them into prison, punish them in various ways. This is a sort of central tenet of our universe, or at least our worldview. Um, the Greeks don't necessarily have that. Like, yeah, they'll punish people who do bad things, but they also kind of recognize that a lot of people will be carried away by madness or by rage or by lust, do things that are really not good for them, but that they really can't control. Um, the Greeks see the universe as kind of being set in stone. There's only a limited amount of power any one of us has, in part because the gods are always messing around with our lives. Like, we're going to see many, many occasions of the gods influencing mortals, mucking about in their affairs, changing the trajectory of events to suit their own desires. Like, this is pretty normal in this text. In the Iliad especially, we're going to see this all of the time. Um, like, even as far as we've gotten in this book so far, we see, you know, Achilles prays to his, or talks to his mom and is like, Mom, I'm really upset that Agamemnon is taking advantage of me, and Thetis goes to Zeus and has Zeus literally tip the scales in the Trojans' favor to screw over the Greeks because Zeus owes Thetis one and Thetis is trying to, you know, get back at the Greeks for what they did to her son. All of this is outside of the Greeks' control. Um, like, admittedly, the inciting incident here is Achilles asks for Zeus to screw the Greeks over, which, you know, will evaluate that in its own right, because that is, in fact, a free decision, and Achilles should very much be held accountable for it. But Agamemnon, Menelaus, Odysseus, Ajax, you know, all of these characters are just kind of caught up in this. They just have to react to what's going on. When Zeus starts screwing the Greeks over, they can't do anything about it except get screwed. Um, and notice, again, apparently all of this, including Achilles' rage itself, is part of the plan, as Zeus's will was done. And again, we'll talk about this a lot more as we get like more concrete examples of, of how fate works in this text, but be on the lookout. Like, look for cases where Homer very much emphasizes, either because of the events that are going on or what the characters say to each other, that fate is working behind the scenes. Um, it, hopefully we will have a better view of how fate works in the Greek universe by the end of this text. Um, for now, let it be sort of a warning here, just as Homer is dropping it. You know... This is apparently all according to the will of Zeus. This is apparently all written beforehand. All of these characters are somehow bound to follow this story to its conclusion, as awful as that conclusion might be. Um, but enough ham-handed discussion of that first stanza. Let's actually dig into the text and see what other stuff we can pull out of it. And obviously the first thing that we really need to talk about here is Agamemnon and Achilles. Um... We are very much thrown into the middle of a feud here. Um, Apollo is apparently very annoyed because Agamemnon and Achilles and the Greeks apparently like raided some temple of Apollo and carried off the, the soothsayer, the priest's daughter. Um, Chryses is the priest, Chryseis is the daughter. And now Chryses is apparently petitioning Apollo to screw over the Greeks, and Apollo does this the way that Apollo usually does, namely by shooting them all with arrows, which makes them horribly sick, and now it's a plague. 
Um, and Achilles, quite rightly, is like, dude, if we have to fight both the Trojans and the plague, we might as well just go home, because we are done. Um, the Greeks are having enough trouble as it is. Again, we're nine years into this war. Very little headway has been made. It's basically just this giant stalemate that's been going on for years now. And now, if anything, there's this huge handicap that the Greeks are suffering from because Apollo is picking them off one by one. And Achilles is absolutely right to point this out, but I want to stress, as much as Agamemnon comes off badly here, we need to recognize exactly what's going on. Remember, Agamemnon is the leader here. He is the big deal king. He is in charge of the entire Greek forces at this point. Um, Apollodorus told us that uh, Achilles was the admiral. He was in charge of the, the Greek fleet when they were at sea. But now that they've landed, uh, Agamemnon is in charge of the groundwork, the, the army as it, as it stands. Um, but notice that there's a bit of a, of a problem here, a sort of underlying issue belying this conflict. Namely, Agamemnon is a general. Achilles is a warrior. And you'll notice that Agamemnon and Achilles frequently insult each other because of their various responsibilities here. Achilles is specifically upset because he doesn't feel that he is getting his fair share of the loot, his fair share of the honor, his fair share of recognition. Agamemnon, as the leader, gets first pick from all the swag that the Greeks pick up. He gets the best prizes. He gets to command everybody to do stuff. And that doesn't seem fair to Achilles, because Agamemnon's entire responsibility is to sit at the back of the army and just, like, point and tell people to do things all by or that he refuses to do himself. So notice on page 5, this is around line 160, 159-ish, um, Achilles directly sort of attacks him on this. Um, Achilles looked him up and down and said, You sorry profiteering excuse for a commander. How are you going to get any Greek warrior to follow you into battle again? You know, I don't have any quarrel with the Trojans. They didn't do anything to me to make me come over here and fight. Didn't run off my cattle or horses or ruin my farmland back home in Phthia. Not with all the shadowy mountains and moaning seas between. It's for you, dogface, for your precious pleasure and Menelaus's honor that we came here. A fact you don't even have the decency to mention. And now you're threatening to take away the prize that I sweated for and the Greeks gave me? I never get a prize equal to yours when the army captures one of the Trojan strongholds. No, I do all the dirty work with my own hands, and when the battle's over and we divide the loot, you get the lion's share, and I go back to the ships with some pitiful little thing so worn out from fighting I don't have the strength left even to complain. Well, I'm going home to Phythia now. Far better to head home with my curved ships and stay here unhonored myself and piling up a fortune for you. Notice Achilles attacks Agamemnon on a couple of fronts here. On the first front, he mentions, you know, how are you going to get any Greek warrior to follow you into battle again? He says, Agamemnon, you're a crappy leader. Why would anyone follow you? Here you are, like, uh, the soothsayer Calchas has literally just told you, you know, despite being afraid for his life and asking Achilles to protect him, Calchas has told you the reason why Apollo is messing up the army, destroying all of our soldiers, is because you ran off with Chryseis, the priest's daughter. You are the one holding on to her. You, therefore, need to return her if we have any chance of winning this war. Why would anyone follow you 
if you are prioritizing your selfish desires over the good of the army, over the good of the war. This is a reasonable accusation on his part. Agamemnon is kind of being a jerk here. Which brings up a really interesting question, something that's kind of problematic in for people who are, you know, reading this text and studying the Iliad in general. Does Agamemnon suck? Like, consider the evidence that we have here. Again, Agamemnon doesn't seem to be terribly wise in the way that he interacts with the various characters here. People are legitimately afraid of him, which, you know, can be a valuable trait in a leader. But notice that he's kind of petulant about it. Like, when Chris, when it's, uh, when Crises asks for his daughter back originally, Agamemnon responds, don't let me ever catch you, old man, by these ships again. Skulking around now or sneaking back later, the god's staff and ribbons won't save you next time. The girl is mine, and she'll be an old woman in Argos before I let her go. Working the loom in my house and coming to my bed, far from her homeland. Now clear out of here before you make me angry. So notice, like, he just shoots the guy down. He's making a reasonable petition, hey, I am a priest, that's my daughter, you're kind of offending the gods here. Agamemnon's response is, shut up and go away. I'm Agamemnon, don't mess with me. Um, later, when Calchas repeats this, says that the reason why Apollo is killing us all off is because of crises, his response is, you damn soothsayer, this is line 112, by the way, you've never given me a good omen yet. You take some kind of perverse pleasure in prophesying doom, don't you? Not a single favorable omen ever. Nothing good ever happens. And now you stand here, uttering oracles before the Greeks, telling us that your great ballistic god is giving us all this trouble because I was unwilling to accept the ransom for Chrysi's daughter, but preferred instead to keep her in my tent? And why shouldn't I? I like her better than my wife, Clytemnestra. She's no worse than her when she comes to looks, body, mind, or ability. Still, I'll give her back, if that's what's best. I don't want to see the army destroyed like this, but I want another prize ready for me right away. I'm not going to be the only Greek without a prize. It wouldn't be right, and you all see where mine is going. Notice there's a lot of dynamism to this particular speech. A lot is happening here when Agamemnon is sort of complaining and arguing and, and sort of fighting with Achilles. Notice he starts by accusing Calchas. Damn, soothsayer, you haven't given me a single good omen yet. Do you take some kind of perverse pleasure in prophesying doom? All, he's basically denouncing Christ, or Calchas. Now, this is tricky. On the one hand, we need to recognize the Greeks do need to respect the gods. They recognize, like, even later on, you know, we, we see people specifically saying this, you know, by honoring the gods, the gods will treat you well in return. If you dishonor the gods, the gods will screw you over. So you have to be careful in your dealings with the gods here, or they might very well mess with you, destroy your army, screw you over, strike you with lightning, however this might work. Um, but it isn't quite that predictable either. The gods aren't of one mind. Just as fate might be this dark cloud hanging over this entire book, we should also emphasize that the gods have their own agendas and they're not to be swayed if they're particularly keen on what they're doing. Um, as much as the, count, the good wisdom here, the good counsel here is, dude, you need to give back Chryseis because you're pissing off Apollo and Apollo is wrecking us as a consequence. And when, in fact, 
Agamemnon does give Chryseis back, you'll notice Apollo perfectly reasonably stops killing off the Greeks. Like, he is pleased, they have a feast, everyone's happy, they all go home, everyone's cool. Hooray! Crisis averted. Um, Agamemnon, by denouncing Calchas, by denouncing Crises, by rejecting all these priests and soothsayers, is potentially pissing off the gods more. And we know what happens to Agamemnon. We know he comes to a bad end. Um, but notice, as much as our whole Trojan War story from Apollodorus very much emphasizes, like, Agamemnon comes home and Clytemnestra murders him with the help of Aegisthus by, like, putting the shirt on his head that doesn't have any holes in it. Um, as much as we should recognize, like, yeah, that's a shitty way to die, we also have to recognize that it's not clear whether this is because Agamemnon pissed off the gods or followed their directions. Remember, the reason why Clytemnestra murders him is because Agamemnon sacrificed Iphigenia, his daughter, to Artemis to get the wind to blow properly, which, admittedly, Artemis was pissed at him because he had dishonored Artemis, but, you know, again, Lord got to sort of focus on one issue at a time here. It's complicated, is what it comes down to. Agamemnon gets murdered because he honored the gods as a sort of direct cause, even if we regularly see him dishonoring the gods as a sort of overall pattern of behavior. It's not straightforward. Um, Agamemnon is not merely pious or impious. He is not just a bad guy to the gods, and he's not just a good guy. So it doesn't quite shake out that easily. But the evidence here is certainly that he isn't being pious, and that is potentially a problem. But I also want to stress that this isn't quite that simple, because notice that by the end of the speech, he does change his mind. Still, I'll give her back if that's what best. I don't want to see the army destroyed like this, but I want another prize ready for me right away. Now, on the one hand, we can see this as petulance. Fine, I'll give her back because, you know, all of you are whining about everybody dying. Uh, um, but I definitely want a prize, like, immediately. Like, since you're all being babies about this, fine, I'll give back the specific prize that I have that's, you know, causing the problem. But I damn well better have a prize waiting for me as soon as I do. Uh, I don't care where you find it. I don't care how you get it. And Achilles is like, dude, where are we going to get a prize at this point? Like, we haven't sacked a town in weeks. And Agamemnon's like, I don't care. I'll just take yours then. And it's this whole thing. Um, as much as that sounds petulant to us, we also have to recognize there are issues of honor here as well. Um, and this is, again, super complicated. And it's another one of the big ideas that Homer is very interested in talking about, very interested in writing about, very interested in sort of displaying for us here. Because at the end of the day, the issue between Agamemnon and Achilles is a battle over honor. Now, admittedly, it's also a battle over a woman, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But first and foremost, it's honor. Agamemnon's honor is offended when Chryseis is taken from him. Even though it's the gods who take it, even though it's completely unavoidable, even though it's the right thing to do, Agamemnon is like, dude, I cannot be the only person without a prize here. There is a decent reason for this. Honor is respect in the Greek world. It's how you get shit done. 
Now, that could be in the city of Athens, where there's this huge democracy, and as a result, your reputation is what causes you to be able to influence others to come over to your side and do what you want them to do. Um, here in Homer's day, it probably has something much more to do with, you know, the amount of respect that you gain and therefore the amount of respect that others pay to you. Agamemnon is followed by his army because he is honored, because he wins battles, because he is successful at things. Um, and he demonstrates that honor, not just with his skill, but with the swag that he carries. Having a bunch of stuff is how you get people to follow you. Like, on the one hand, this sounds really mercenary. Like, everybody's just in it for all the gold swag that Agamemnon has lying around, all the oxes that he could potentially give them, or all the tripods, or all the women that he has, like, lying around that he can bestow as gifts. And on the one hand, that's kind of true. Like, the Greeks do definitely follow the guy with the most swag because they will be most generously rewarded by the guy with the most swag. But this is also symbolic. Agamemnon has the most swag because he gets shit done, because people respect him, because people give him stuff, and because he takes stuff from people who cannot defend themselves. When you have your stuff taken from you, you are dishonored, as Achilles is when Briseis is taken from him, or when Agamemnon is when Chryseis is taken from him. And it's significant to Agamemnon that having his prize taken away is a big black mark against him. If he keeps letting people walk all over him, his troops are not going to take him seriously. And you'll notice he's got a leadership crisis here. Achilles is not following his instructions. Achilles flat out insults him to his face multiple times in this discussion. And as much as we might see the merit in Achilles' arguments, as much as we see Agamemnon being this petulant little rat bastard who refuses to do what's best for the troops, notice that Agamemnon also is dealing with an insubordinate officer here. Achilles is saying, we should just pack up and go home. And Agamemnon is like, I cannot have this in my army. Like, if Achilles decides to pack up and go home, we're done here. Like, nobody's going to follow me. And Achilles even threatens him with that exact argument. How are you going to get any Greek warrior to follow you into battle again? On the one hand, Achilles is charging Agamemnon. If you take people's stuff from them, if you deprive them of their honors, people won't follow you because they don't receive what they feel is their appropriate reward. But Agamemnon has to be thinking about this from the back end as well. If I keep letting people walk all over me, if I keep letting people take away my prizes, eventually people aren't going to respect me. And when I say do X, Y, Z, they're just going to laze around and do nothing. Like we see in chapter 2, this whole thing where Agamemnon is like, all right, we're going to test the troops and we're going to make sure that, you know, they've still got their medal and I'm going to tell them to retreat. And when they do, like, everybody round them up and, and make sure that they're ready to, to fight again. And Agamemnon's like, all right, well, we lost. This war is totally over. Let's all go home. And the troops are like, hell yeah, let's get out of here. And they all, like, sprint for the ships. It's not quite clear whether that was Agamemnon's intention. It certainly seems, though, that the troops are feeling pretty mutinous. They do not want to be here. This is a nine-year-long war. They have been away from their homes and their families and their crops and their cities and the responsibilities that they have on a day-to-day -day basis for nine years. 
nine years away from their wives, nine years away from their children, nine years away from their estates, nine years away from their fathers and mothers. They want to go home bad. And Agamemnon knows showing weakness here is going to be disastrous. As much as honor is kind of this frivolous thing, especially in our culture where it really isn't that much of a respected thing, or at least not by name, like I suspect all of us actually do have a very careful sense of our own honor, we just call it something different these days. Um, as much as we see this as frivolous, this is life or death for Agamemnon. This is success or failure in this war. And as much as it's real easy to sort of point at Agamemnon, decide with Achilles and be like, that dog-faced idiot doesn't know what he's doing and nobody should follow him, we need to recognize Agamemnon's in a corner here. He's not safe. And he reacts appropriately. He asserts his authority. He says, okay, insubordinate officer, you want to make trouble with me? I will take your prize then. And as much as Homer frames this as the petulant act of a child who isn't getting what he wants, hey, I'm not allowed to have my prize anymore, so I'm just going to take it from you. We also need to recognize that this is Agamemnon trying to correct an injustice. Achilles is acting out. Achilles is behaving unjustly. Achilles refuses to acknowledge his authority. And the real danger here is that there's a good reason for it. Remember the second part of Achilles' speech. You know, he has all this to say about how are you going to get any Greek warrior to follow you into battle again, but he goes on to say, no, I do all the dirty work with my own hands. And this is something that's also repeated. Achilles is the strongest warrior in this whole army, bar none. Like, later in part two, when we get the whole list of all of the warriors and stuff, it's mentioned explicitly by Homer, by the, by the narrator here, the only reason why Telamonian Ajax is the strongest warrior is because Achilles is sitting out in the fight. Like, Achilles is unqualifiedly the strongest dude in the Greek arsenal. He is practically single-handedly taking over cities, destroying whole armies. He and his Myrmidons are a huge part of the, of the Greek war force here. Agamemnon knows that they are a threat to his authority. He recognizes that, yeah, he's got more troops, he's got more swag, He's got a better position when they're back on at Greece, and he is the ruler of Mycenae, as opposed to lame old Phythia. Um, but at the same time, Achilles is strong enough that if Agamemnon let him, Achilles could theoretically stage an overthrow. Achilles is not just insubordinate, he's got power behind him. He's got real strength. People will listen to him. People will follow him, because he gets shit done in a way that Agamemnon isn't quite so good at doing. Which is kind of the other issue here. When we talk about Agamemnon, keen as I am to emphasize, no, there is in fact reason for what he's doing, he is in fact trying to be a good leader here, we also have to recognize that he really doesn't succeed. Um... And this is ambivalent in the sort of culture surrounding the Agamemnon as well. Like, in a lot of Greek art, in a lot of Greek pottery, in a lot of other Greek sources, Agamemnon is presented as a really capable commander. Um, he is a good general. He is one of the greatest 
commanders in the history of the, of the Greek armies. Like, he is respected, he is revered, he is, you know, very much not necessarily, like, shamed or dishonored by Homer's portrayal of him here. Um, which is kind of weird. Like, when you read the Iliad, you see how badly Homer kind of treats Agamemnon a lot of the time, and then you read other stuff, and it's like, yeah, Agamemnon's the best general the Greeks ever had. And you're just like, wait, was that the same Agamemnon that I was just reading about? Yeah, it is. Again, there's a reason for what Agamemnon is doing. But, also, he's bad. He's he's not a very good general. He's He's bad at his job. Like, Achilles accuses him this of this of him several times. Again, how do you how are you going to get any Greek warrior to follow you in battle again? He says at line 160. And again, on, around line 240, he says something similar. You bloated drunk with a dog's eyes and a rabbit's heart. You've never had the guts to buckle on armor in battle or come out with the best fighting Greeks on any campaign. Afraid to look death in the eye, Agamemnon? It's far more profitable to hang back in the army's rear, isn't it? Confiscating prizes from any Greek who talks back and bleeding your people dry. There's not a real man under your command, or this latest atrocity would be your last, son of Atreus. Notice, Agamemnon is physically inferior to Achilles. Like, Achilles really could just wreck Agamemnon without even breaking a sweat if it came to an out-and-out -out fight. Like, that's why uh, Athena stops him from pulling his sword and literally just, like, decapitating Agamemnon where he stands. Also, he's apparently a backseat general. He is very much navigating all of this from the rear and just taking the swag without doing all that much fighting in the process. Like, Agamemnon can hold his own. We're going to see him actually fight at one point. Like, he, he's definitely on the top tier of, of Greek heroes, for sure. But, not like Achilles, and Agamemnon prefers his armchair general perspective. He prefers to sit at the back and let other people do the dirty work for him. Especially people like Achilles, who really are good at fighting and who really do have great prowess in battle. So, Agamemnon's leadership is uncertain. Like, notice that the first real test we get, besides, you know, how do you deal with an insubordinate officer, apparently you take his shit away, um, is, in fact, in Chapter 2, when Agamemnon's like, let's test the troops, and it immediately collapses into anarchy and all the troops rushing back to the ships to go home. Now, that scene, too, is ambiguous. On the one hand, Agamemnon's like, we're going to test the troops, and we're going to make sure that the leaders can handle them, and we're going to get them riled up this way, on the one hand, yes, they all immediately flee for the ships. Clearly, there's a lot of mutiny in the ranks. The troops are not ready to fight. They're, everyone is unhappy and demoralized. Like, there's practically a rout. On the other hand, though, notice that it does actually work out. Like, Odysseus slaps them all into shape. He smacks around Thersites, the guy who's, like, talking smack about Agamemnon and the other leaders. Um, Odysseus delivers this impassioned speech about how, like... You know, Calchas originally told them that there were, like, this dream of the eight, or no, the, the portent of the eight birds being eaten by the, the snake, and then the mother bird was eaten by the snake, and Calchas was like, well, that means that in nine years we're going to fail to take over Troy, but then in the tenth year we're going to do it. And apparently this is enough. Like, everybody's immediately cheering. They're like, yeah, let's do this. Let's take over Troy. Let's do it today. And Agamemnon's apparently convinced that this is going to happen. Like, it does succeed. He did, his test works. Like, it both does 
reform the metal of his troops, and it gets them all riled up to attack Troy, but at the same time, it's also a lie, because it's a dream that Zeus gave to Agamemnon, which is actually a false dream, because Achilles asked... It's this whole thing. The fact of the matter is, it's complicated. Agamemnon is effective as a leader, as a general, and the Greeks recognize him as such. But it's not quite clear why. It's not quite clear how. Agamemnon's every triumph could also be reframed as a blunder. He totally mishandles the situation with Achilles, and as a consequence, Achilles is sitting out the war for several weeks. Or alternatively, Agamemnon has successfully put Achilles in his place and, you know, restored order to the ranks of his troops. Agamemnon is testing his troops, and it's a giant rout, and it totally shows that Odysseus is a way better commander than Agamemnon is. Or that was Agamemnon's plan all along, and actually Agamemnon's totally got the situation under, under control. It's really hard to say here. But notice, that's what Homer is getting at. Homer is less interested in Agamemnon's prowess as a general than in what Achilles thinks about Agamemnon's prowess as a general. And Achilles is outspokenly insulting to Agamemnon. That's the important takeaway here. Not whether or not Agamemnon is a really good general, really who's to say, but what is the relationship between the two? And that brings us to Achilles. Achilles, notice, is also really obsessed about his honor here. Just as we were stressing, you know, just a moment ago, like Agamemnon's being super petulant, well, don't take away my prize, Achilles responds in kind. When Agamemnon takes away Briseis, Achilles sulks it out in his tent, refuses to fight, and even goes so far as to maybe attack Agamemnon? Like, kill the guy who's in charge of the whole army here? And even if he didn't make it that far, even if his rage was in fact quelled, calmed by Athena, notice that his solution really isn't all that much better. He goes to his tent, and he talks to his mom, and he's like, Mom, I'm supposed to get honor here. And Agamemnon is taking away my prize, thus dishonoring me. Why am I even here then? Which, notice, that's a really important point for Achilles. Achilles stresses in his whole speech to Agamemnon, he doesn't need to be here. Like, remember why everybody is attacking the Trojans? Like, we have that whole thing from Apollodorus where, you know, everybody's after Helen, so Odysseus, like, gets all the guys together and makes them all agree, whoever marries Helen, we're all going to agree to protect him. And when Paris takes Helen away from Menelaus, the vow that they made, like, suddenly comes into force, and now all of these guys are honor-bound to go find Helen and carry her back home. Notice Achilles wasn't there. Achilles was too young to be there. And Achilles stresses, I don't have a horse in this race. It wasn't the Trojans taking away my wife. It wasn't the Trojans sacking my land. I've got no beef with them. The reason why I am on this particular boondoggle adventure is because I am here for honor. And the, dis the discussion that he has with, with Thetis is especially emphatic about this. This is... Very important to him. He stresses it about line 365 on page 11 in book 1. 
Mother, since you bore me for a short life only, Olympian Zeus was supposed to grant me honor. Well, he hasn't given me any at all. Agamemnon has taken away my prize and dishonored me. The suggestion that he's making here is that Achilles has been presented with a choice. He did not have to come to this war. He did not have to, you know, potentially die in this conflict. He could theoretically have sat it out at home. And if he did, he would undoubtedly have a long, peaceful life, because, you know, really, who could possibly threaten him in Phythia? Um, he's Achilles, son of the goddess Thetis and Peleus, the greatest warrior the Greeks can muster. Like, I imagine that typical raiders and pirates wouldn't present much of a threat to this guy. Um, so he's could theoretically live at home peacefully, have a very long, happy life, and die, but without any particular distinction or honor. Or alternatively, he could go to Troy, beat the crap out of everyone he meets in front of the greatest army ever assembled, and thus win honor and accolades that will cause his name to be talked about for thousands of years to come. This is the choice that he faces. So the complaint that he has here, you know, since I am on this earth for only a little while, and the only reason that I'm here is to get honor, if I'm not getting honor, there's no reason for me to be here. Like, Achilles makes a pretty compelling argument here. I don't need to fight Agamemnon's wars for him, especially if he is going to shit on me in the process. I am here for the honor. If I'm not getting my honor, I may as well go home. So, as much as Achilles also kind of comes off as a bit petulant in the, the discussion, suddenly getting upset and possibly resorting to violence when his prize is taken away, concluding that he's going to sit out in the war until the Greeks are desperate for him, as much as that sounds petulant too, notice that honor is important to him. He's here for it, and he doesn't see any point in staying here if he's not going to get it. Much as Agamemnon and Achilles both come off kind of childish, much as both of them aren't necessarily great people in this exchange, or generally speaking, there are reasons for what they're doing. Honor is really important to them. Agamemnon, because it's what powers his war effort, because it's what keeps him in the position that he enjoys. Achilles, because that's what he's here for. Because fighting and gaining honor and being talked about for generations to come is the only thing that Achilles has to look forward to since he's going to have an otherwise pretty short life. He knows he's going to die in this war if he sticks it out. This is the cost for a great and honorable existence, a life that it will be celebrated for years to come. But, and we need to stress this, he may be going a little too far here. Remember, you know, it's one thing for Achilles to be like, eh, I'm going to sit out this war because I'm not getting enough honor. It's another thing for him to ask his mom to talk to Zeus himself and screw over the Greeks until, that, until like, they realize how badly they are with, off without him. Call in the debt that Zeus owes you, he says at line 410. I remember often hearing you tell in my father's house how you alone managed of all the immortals to save Zeus's neck, etc., etc. Remind Zeus of this. Sit holding his knees. See if he is willing to help the Trojans. Hem the Greeks in between the fleet and the sea. Once they start being killed, the Greeks may appreciate Agamemnon for what he is, and the wide-ruling son of Atreus will see what a fool he's been because he did not honor the best of all the fighting Achaeans. Notice... 
it's one thing to say, okay, I'm here for honor, I'm not getting honor, so I'm not going to fight anymore. It's another thing to be like, so all of you are going to die, and I'm going to specifically wish that all of you were going to suffer and die until you do. This is what Homer's talking about when he's talking about the incalculable pain of the Greeks, the bodies lying to rot on the beach. This is what Achilles brings about, and this is almost certainly a step too far. This is where he goes from being, you know, hero with wounded honor to petulant child basically throwing a tantrum. Um, but we also need to recognize this. Like, as much as, you know, you probably came to this class expecting to read this book, the most famous book in Western literature about heroes and gods and monsters and so on and so forth, you probably expected one of those fairly typical, like, Joseph Campbell, Hero of a Thousand Faces heroes, who's, like, totally perfect, except maybe one or two little, you know, tragic flaws, maybe, and, and like, they're just going to do heroic deeds, and they're going to, like, Superman or Captain America all over the place and be, like, really awesome. No. Not even a little bit. Like, of the heroes we've met so far, I'd say probably the most well-behaved of the bunch is probably Odysseus. Like, Agamemnon, possibly a really terrible leader, seemingly very petulant, kind of causing more trouble than is appropriate given the dishonor that he has received. Let's call it a C, C- minus at best. Achilles, wounded honor, gets really upset, gets insubordinate, insults his commanding officer, goes back to his tent, refuses to fight in the war, and also asks his mom to screw over his own friends and countrymen. Yeah, he's not doing much better than Agamemnon there. Again, maybe a C, because, like, at least he didn't start it. He did call Agamemnon out on his crap, but you really want to emulate that guy? But Odysseus, you know, his claim to fame at this point is, okay, so he successfully took Perseus back and performed all the sacrifices correctly, so, you know, that's good. Like, that's, like, B-plus work. But also, when Agamemnon totally screws the pooch and all the troops are running for the, for the boats, Odysseus is the one who manages to talk sense into them, to rile them all up, to, like, smack Thersites in the mouth. He's the one who restores order. He's apparently the guy who's holding this army together at this point. If there's an A-level hero here, it's Odysseus. But, of course, that'll get more complicated, too. Suffice it to say that these are complicated characters. They are not just good or just evil. The Greeks have major problems in their war effort here. And a lot of those problems are because Agamemnon and Achilles are kind of immature, aren't behaving terribly well, are kind of just engaged in this giant dick-waving competition that's screwing over the entire army. That sucks. And we should definitely recognize that as we go forward. Uh, but let's talk about the elephant in the room here. We should also mention, you know, since we're on the subject of dick-waving and toxic masculinity in general, oh man, this is shitty for the women. And it is. Like, I do not want at all to deny how shitty this is for the women. So far, we have been introduced to probably three female characters, if we're being generous and, and count Clytemnestra, because, like, Agamemnon definitely brings her up. But all three of them aren't treated well. Chryseis is being passed around as basically an object. Like, the only thing that Agamemnon cares about is that she's his prize, and that he 
quote, prefers her, her, her to Clytemnestra, his wife. So the only thing we know about Clytemnestra is that she's also getting totally screwed around, screwed by Agamemnon here, except not because nine miles or nine years away from home. And then we've got Briseis, who is also just apparently a pawn and just being sort of passed around by various heroes for purposes of honoring themselves. Yeah, this sucks. And I want to emphasize, this is fairly normal in Greek culture. Women are objects for all intents and purposes. There will be women who sort of transcend this status, who become more than objects, who are in fact better. And we've even met some of them, like Athena is definitely doing more than just being an object, even in this, this passage. Like, even now we see some of the awesome things that she's doing and intervening and keeping uh, the feud between Achilles and Agamemnon breaking out into violence. But it doesn't change the fact that they're def even Athena kind of gets second-class citizen status. She's definitely still subordinate to Zeus, who is king of the gods and most important and so on and so forth. Um, that sucks. Even when women are not being objects, they definitely are underpowered here. And that's not even mentioning the whole, the entire Trojan War is because of Tr Helen and her beauty, and the entire feud between Agamemnon and Achilles is because of Briseis and Chryseis. Like, therefore, women are the worst, and we should definitely beware them because they're destroying us. Like, Hesiod even has a passage in the, the um, Theogony where he literally says that, like, women were an evil designed by Zeus for mankind, and, like, they're just tempting and destructive and awful. Like, this is very much in line with the Greek mindset here, and I do not want to claim that it is anything but misogyny. But, and I should stress this, you can't stop with that. Yes, the Greeks were misogynistic. Full stop, that's true, not going to claim it otherwise. But misogyny varies from culture to culture, from society to society, and we need to recognize misogyny in the Greek world looks very different from misogyny nowadays. The way that women are portrayed here in Homer are surprisingly nuanced. And while it is, at the end of the day, misogynistic, there's going to be a lot of passing around women as prizes, there's going to be a lot of objectification of women, there's going to be a lot of women sort of being second-class citizens, or being slaves, or being out-and-out -out raped in multiple occasions. Like, notice, nobody is asking whether Chryseis or Briseis has given consent for their role as concubines in the households of Agamemnon and Achilles, respectively. Even Hera seems to be fairly, like enthralled to Zeus, as much as all of this is shitty, we also need to recognize Homer does make these women into characters. Frequently. Not Chryseis or Briseis. Like, Chryseis is already out of the story. She didn't even get a line. She practically didn't even get a name. Like, I think they only called her anything but Chryseis' daughter, like, once in this whole text. Briseis will get a little bit more character. And you'll notice, like, Briseis even gets a moment here. Um, when, in fact, like Agamemnon sends everybody to sort of retrieve Briseis, notice Briseis isn't happy about the situation. Like, the heralds show up, and I love the line there, it was not the sort of mission a herald would relish. Like, all of them are terrified that Achilles is going to be the living shit out of them when they come and try and take his prize away. But Achilles notably restrains himself. Like, he re responds with dignity, he orders Patroclus to go bring Briseis out. Um, but notice this is line uh, three, four, or 358 thereabouts. 
Patroclus obeyed his beloved friend and brought Briseis, cheeks flushed, out of the tent and gave her to the heralds, who led her away. She went unwillingly. Then Achilles, in tears, withdrew from his friends and sat down far away on the foaming white seashore, staring out at the endless sea. Notice, this is more, or seems to suggest more, than just women being treated as currency. Briseis isn't happy about the change. She seems to like hanging out with Achilles. She is taken unwillingly from Achilles to Agamemnon. And you could definitely argue, yeah, that maybe it's because Achilles is a better master. Maybe Agamemnon is just a complete asshole to his concubines. Totally possible he doesn't seem very nice to his wife when he unfavorably compares Chryseis to uh, Clytemnestra, and therefore you could definitely argue that Agamemnon is kind of terrible, even by, you know, concubining standards. Maybe Achilles is just a decenter master. But it also seems to suggest a real connection here. Achilles goes and weeps over this. Maybe that's just because of his wounded honor. Maybe it's just because he's upset. Maybe it's just because, you know, he's worried he's going to die. Who knows? But the suggestion here seems to be causal. He liked Briseis. He cared about her. Like, it's not very... It's hard to read into it here, and it is reading into it at this point. But notice that Homer is suggesting that there's a connection here. Much as these women are being passed around as objects, much as these women have very little say in their own fates, much as Achilles probably captured and raped Briseis as part of conquering the same city where Chryseis was conquered and captured and likely raped, as much as all of that is terrible, Homer is portraying a world where that's not the worst thing that can happen to a woman. Briseis has a connection to Achilles. Achilles treats her well. And most of the women slaves that we're going to bump into in the course of this text are going to be treated well. When we say slaves, you can't picture 19th century American slavery like in the Deep South. You cannot picture just, you know, abuse and whipping and physical labor and elaborate calculations for pricing and horrible treatment and separating of families. That's not how this works in Greek culture, certainly not in Homer's day, and it's not very common even in the time of the classical Greeks, although the Spartans are notoriously bad at keeping slaves. Slaves have an economic role to play in this society. Many slaves can even get past this economic role, buy their freedom, or be released at the generos generosity of their owners. Um, this is not a matter of, you know, you are now my possession and I can treat you however I want, including beating you to death. Like, some Greeks do that, it's frowned upon. Socially, this is not the way you're supposed to behave with your slaves. Your slaves are part of your family, part of your household. You are responsible for their protection. Achilles probably feels like he's letting Briseis down in some way by letting Agamemnon carry her off. Part of that whole business of honor is connected to a man's role in the family. He is protecting his household, and that includes Briseis. For Agamemnon to come in and take what he wants from Achilles' household is a huge breach of etiquette and honor. And this is bad in multiple ways. 
So as much as being carried off from your family and being carried off into some foreign land and becoming basically little more than a possession in somebody else's house sucks for women, and I don't want to downplay that, they're not being totally mistreated and abused here. There are better households to be found in, and this might well have been a move up for Briseis. Briseis may have had a shitty family where she was treated like crap in a poor household, and Achilles captured her, and now she's living considerably larger than she was before. This is totally plausible in the Greek world, and it's a reality that a lot of women are going to face and wrestle with here. And what's more, as much as this situation sucks, you also need to recognize that there's a difference between the world that Homer is describing and the world that Homer is prescribing. Homer seems surprisingly sympathetic to women a lot of the time in his text. Watch out for that. We haven't seen a lot of it here, but there is even one major clue, one major cue that Homer gives us that things are not what they seem here. And for that, we need to change over and look at the gods. I want to look specifically at the way that Zeus and Hera interact here. Because once again, we have a fairly dictatorial situation. Hera is in fact Zeus's wife, so you know this is clearly a step up from Briseis, who's getting passed around from person to person because she's basically just a possession. She is a concubine, a slave, con a prize, a conquest of war. Clearly there's something different here. But I also want to note the power dynamics and the way that men and women interact. Notice, first of all, that this whole situation comes about because of Thetis, who is also, you'll notice, a woman, Achilles' mom. Now, Thetis is kind of a minor goddess. Like, as much as she is going to be really important to us because she's a huge part of the Iliad and she's an important character in, in all of the stuff that takes place, she moves the plot along, she, you know, has a very important relationship to Achilles that's going to be borne out more and more as the text goes on, she is small potatoes in the bigger picture of Greek mythology. Like, she does not typically live on Olympus. She is not ranked with, like, the high-ranking goddesses like Hera and Athena and Artemis and Aphrodite. Um, she is pretty small potatoes. But notice, she does have power over Zeus here. Like, Achilles talks about this explicitly on pages 12 to 13, that section that I skipped when I was reading earlier. Call in the debt that Zeus owes you. I remember often hearing you tell in my father's house how you alone managed of all the immortals to save Zeus's neck when the other Olympians wanted to bind him. Hera and Poseidon and Pallas Athena, you came and loosened him from his chains and you lured to Olympus's summit the giant with a hundred hands whom the gods call Briarius, but men call Aegeon, stronger even than his own father Uranus. And he sat hulking in front of cloud-black Zeus, proud of his prowess and sacred all and scared all the gods who were we're trying to put the son of Cronus in chains. First, notice, much as Zeus is going to emphasize many times over the course of this text, like several times we're going to hear Zeus say this, and several times we're going to hear other gods kind of echo this. Zeus is big and scary, and he can put all the gods in their place in any moment. He can, like, zap them with lightning bolts. He can definitely beat up single-handedly any one of the gods. Like, he is king for a reason. He is really powerful and really strong. Notice, that doesn't mean that he's completely inaccessible. There have apparently been attempts to overthrow Zeus. And notice that this includes Hera and Athena and Poseidon, who would be three fairly logical people to sort of take on Zeus's power. This has precedent. 
as much as it isn't developed here, as much as Achilles is clearly just like telling this story as a reference to a, a sort of longer tradition or something, this is something that needs to be noticed. But notice too, it's a woman who gets mad at it. Thetis is the one who kind of outsmarts the other gods who are overthrowing Zeus. She's the one who looses Zeus's bonds, and also who releases Briarius, who sort of like creates a distraction that causes all the gods to, you know, get scared and requires Zeus's help to overcome him. So Zeus owes Thetis one, and Thetis calls in his calls in this favor. So notice, um, Thetis did not forget her son's requests. This is line 525-ish. She rose from the sea and up through the air to the great sky and found Cronus's wide-seeing sun sitting in isolation on the highest peak of the rugged Olympic massive. She settled beside him and touched his knees with her left hand, her, his beard with her right, and made her plead to the Lord of Sky, Father Zeus, if I have ever helped you in word or deed among the immortals, grant me this prayer. Honor my son, doomed to die young and yet dishonored by King Agamemnon, who stole his prize, a personal affront. Do justice by him, Lord of Olympus. Give the Trojans the upper hand until the Greeks grant my son the honor he deserves. Thetis has play here. Thetis can totally get Zeus to do what she wants him to do because of the favor that he owes her. She's got power over him, in short. And Zeus begrudgingly acknowledges this. She says, give me a clear yes or no, either nod in a center refuse me, why should you care if I know how negligible a goddess I am in your eyes? And Zeus responds, this is disastrous. You're going to force me into conflict with Hera. I can just hear her now, cursing me and bawling me out. As it is, she already accuses me of favoring the Trojans. Please go back the way you came. Maybe Hera won't notice. I'll take care of this. And so you can have some peace of mind, I'll say yes to you by nodding my head. The ultimate pledge, unambiguous, irreversible, and absolutely fulfilled. Apparently, when Zeus nods, it's like, Oh crap, there's no two ways around it. Like, Zeus has nodded. Now he is bound. Like, it's this thing, apparently. But, like, this is the only time it occurs in all of Greek mythology, so far as I know, so really it's hard to say. Um, but notice the reason why Zeus is so reluctant to agree to Thetis is because he's got other woman problems. Remember that Hera is Team Greece all the way. Hera and Athena were both slighted by Paris when Paris chose Aphrodite as the most beautiful of the goddesses so he could get his hands on Helen and cause even more trouble. Um, as a consequence, Hera and Athena are both very much the backbone of the god-Greek team. Like, they are absolutely pro-Greece all the way, absolutely the greatest champions the Greeks have at this point, versus Aphrodite, who is all the way Team Troy. Um... So Hera is Team Greece, and by favoring the Trojans, Zeus is worried that this is going to tick Hera off. As he says, she already accuses me of favoring the Trojans. Now notice, Zeus is trying to be neutral here. He is trying to stay out of the Greek versus Trojan factionalism. Like, we've seen multiple gods already picking sides. Apparently Hera and Athena are Team Greece. Apparently Aphrodite and maybe Apollo, question mark, are Team Troy. Um, but Zeus is trying to stay out of it. He's trying to stay neutral. He's trying to, you know, keep peace in Olympus and not make a preferential treatment. But Hera, being Team Greece, thinks neutrality is favoring Troy. Now that he's going to be more actively favoring Troy, that's going to cause more trouble, and he doesn't want to do that. Meaning, Hera has power over him. Hera has the power to make Zeus miserable, and as a consequence, Zeus is leery of her. 
and is doing what she wants him to do. So he does nod. And notice Hera immediately notices, and Hera immediately calls him out on this. On line 573, he says, or she says, Who was that you were scheming with just now? You just love devising secret plots behind my back, don't you? You can't bear to tell me what you're thinking, or you don't dare. Never have and never will. And the father of gods and men answered, Hera, don't hope to know all my secret thoughts. It would strain your mind, even though you are my wife. What it is proper to hear, no one, human or divine, will hear before you, but what I wish to conceive apart from the other gods. Don't pry into that. Note Zeus's move here. Hera's like, who were you talking to? Was that Thetis? I thought you were talking to Thetis. What were you plotting with Thetis? And Zeus is like, Hera, do not inquire into the mind of Zeus. The inner machinations of my mind are an enigma. Like, Zeus plays the I am the king of the gods card, and you cannot, like, possibly fathom what is going on in my brain. And notice Hera's retort. Oh my, the awesome son of God of Kronos has spoken. Pry? You know that I never pry. And you always cheerfully volunteer whatever information you please. It's just that I have this feeling that somehow the silver-footed daughter of the old man of the sea may have won you over. She was sitting beside you up there in the mist, and she did touch your knees, and I'm pretty sure that you agreed to honor Achilles and destroy Greeks by the thousands beside their ships. Like, here's Zeus. The inner machinations of my mind are an enigma. You can't possibly fathom what is going on in the great and powerful mind of Zeus. And Hera's like, you mean how you just told Thetis that you were going to fuck over the Greeks? And Zeus is like, you witch! Your intuitions are always right, but what does it get you? Nothing, except that I like you less than ever, and so you're worse off. Notice the dynamic here. On the one hand, here's Zeus, mighty and powerful. My mind is too great to fathom. And Hera's like, I know exactly what you're doing. And Zeus is like, God damn it. Damn it, woman. How do you do this to me over and over and over again? Zeus pretends to be powerful pretends to be awesome, pretends to be beyond the reach of all of these gods and goddesses, and Hera can put him in his place with a word. That dynamic is really fundamental to how the gods operate. This is why there are all of these myths about Zeus getting in trouble by sleeping with some mortal woman or sleeping with some other goddess, and then Hera finding out about it and making that mortal's life miserable and making Zeus's life miserable in the process. As much as Zeus is the king of the gods, the all-powerful Zeus, as much as nothing escapes his mind, as Hesiod tells us, Homer is very keen to depict Zeus as kind of a henpecked husband here. Hera has power over him, and so does Athena, as we'll see later. The women in Zeus's life very much dictate what Zeus is going to do. He has to wrestle with them choose his choose his actions carefully lest he tick them off they do in fact have power here now a good feminist would point out yeah but that power is entirely dependent on their relationship women are still in a second class status and i do not deny that at all absolutely this still sucks for women that the only way that they can influence the universe is through their men by manipulating their men by henpecking their men by nagging their men that sucks not denying it. But notice that for Homer, this is power. And it is. 
Hera's going to get shit done by messing with Zeus. And Athena is going to get shit done by messing with Zeus. And Aphrodite is going to get shit done by messing with men, including Zeus and Ares and others. This is the dynamic that the Greeks live in. Yes, women do have power. Briseis commands respect from Achilles. Even Chryseis manages to get Agamemnon to regret giving her up. I like her better than my wife Clytemestra. Sucks for Clytemestra, power for Chryseis. The women of this world do hold sway over men's souls. And while that power is misogynistic and their disempowerment is also misogynistic, you have to recognize this misogyny looks a particular way, has a particular flavor. It looks a certain way because it reflects the way that the Greeks think about women. Being enticing, being dangerous, causing their men to do things that aren't necessarily in their own best interests. This is the very fabric on which the Iliad is written. This is why Helen is so powerful in this text and so potentially destructive and why she is blamed for so much of what happens here. But we need to recognize that even that kind of power remains power in this universe, in this world, in this series of events. Hera can, in the right circumstances, control her husband. Zeus can be controlled. Men, much as they may posture and gloat and brag and so on and so forth, are at the end of the day a bunch of petulant whining babies who can totally be manipulated by sex and by, you know, selfish desires and by marital bliss and tranquility. Men can be manipulated. And women can manipulate. That's part of the power dynamic in this text. So be aware of that. Yes, it's misogynistic. Don't want to deny that. Women are being objectified. Women are being relegated to second-class positions. Women also have power. It is a weird backward kind of power, and it's a power that is very important to Homer in his depiction of these gods and mortals as psychologically logical human beings, and also as people who have stuff they want to get done and are willing to do whatever they can to get that stuff done. So just watch out for that. Um, but we've already gone on for quite a while here, and I think we've done a pretty good job looking over book one especially. Um, the one thing I do want to talk about as our sort of closing note here is the list. Um, I know that there was a very long list, and it sucked to read, and, you know, it's long and boring. I do not deny any of that. I did not expect you to read the whole thing, like, in great detail. Skimming it will be enough. Watching out for the important characters will be enough. Um, what I do want to emphasize, though, is why it's in here. Uh, many scholars have argued that the list is not original to Homer or not original to the original tellings of these poems or whatever. Um, that they are additions. That they are secondary. Um, and the evidence for that is as good as any other evidence that you'll find for textual criticism of the Iliad. Um, but it's hypothesized that the reason why the list of ships and the list of Trojan allies, for that matter, basically the entire back half of Book 2, um, the reason why that's in here is because of pride. In all likelihood, as much as these bards were getting around telling these stories, they were also probably telling these stories to people who cared about them specifically because they remembered sending their troops off to war. Or they have these elaborate traditions about the people who specifically left from their hometown. And as a result, it's all 
it's very likely that the Bards collected this information from all these people and got a fairly distorted view of how this all went down. The fact of the matter is, in 1300-1200 BCE, when the Trojan War is most likely to have happened, there is no way on God's green earth that anyone could successfully muster and coordinate a fleet of a thousand ships, which is literally what's described here. Like, count them up, you got over a thousand ships that are sailing to Troy from the various Greek island and mainland. That is just, frankly, implausible. Like, no way. Could not happen, not with the technology that they had, not with the sheer numbers that they had, just no. No way did they have that many troops land on the Trojan shores in order to attack Ilium. Just no. Um, the reason why those numbers are probably as inflated as they are, though, is that, you know, the Bard showed up at some random podunk, middle-of-nowhere island and said, Hey, did you guys send troops to Troy? I'm collecting information in order to compose my poem. And they were like, oh, heck yes, we sent our greatest hero, his name was such and such, and he went with, like, I don't know, like 30 ships, and they all went, and they were all filled with, like, 50 guys apiece, and all those people we sent to Troy. And the bard was probably like, yep, that tracks, we'll write that down, and, you know, we'll remember that for the next time we tell this poem. In the same way that, like, every town in America is so proud of the, the soldiers that they sent to World War II, or so proud of the soldiers who died in the line of service in World War One, or, you know, who they re remember their names, the Vietnam Memorial, or who, however you want to sort of classify it. As much as we have, you know, long-standing cultural traditions celebrating our soldiers, celebrating our wounded, celebrating our fallen, you know, fallen representatives overseas... As much as that's a huge part of our culture, you better believe it was an even bigger part of Greek culture. And when these bards are going around literally 400, 500 years after the actual Trojan War had taken place, you better believe that those numbers have been embellished a bit. It's a, the fish story phenomenon. You know, you start telling the story of this fish you caught, and the fish you caught was 8 inches long. And then the next time you tell it, it's 10 inches. Or, no, it had to be at least a foot. And then by the time that you're done telling it to the 17th person, now your arms are all the way extended, and apparently this was a three-foot-long fish. Everyone's proud of their hometown. Everybody wants to be recounted. And you better believe, if in fact this section was recited by the bard in Chapter 2, when you're standing around a campfire with the guy playing the drum and the guy playing the lyre, and everybody is hanging on to your every word, and you go into the list of the ships, and it's like, and here's, you know, the city of Phthia, where Achilles brought, like, all of his ships, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, Achilles is really awesome. And he's like, and this is the city that Ajax came from. And they're like, yeah, yeah, Ajax was really awesome. And he's like, and this is the city that I'm talking to now. Hello, Cleveland! And they're like, oh, yeah! We love Cleveland! And they're like, and you guys sent this guy. And they're like, yeah, he was so awesome! And it's like, yeah, and you guys sent 30 ships. And they're like, ah! Like, this is really exciting to them. They're involved in this story. They, this is the moment that all of the Greek ships got together and sailed off to Troy in the greatest battle ever fought, the greatest war ever fought, the greatest historical thing that has ever been told about. And there are songs, and there are stories, and people retell this stuff over and over and over again. It's so exciting. It's so important. It's the foundation of their culture. And they were a part of it. Their town. Their great-great-great-grandfathers, their families, 
they're involved. So as much as this sucks to read 3,000 years after the fact, this probably would have been a real selling point way back in ancient Greece. This was the moment when you got audience participation the most, which is probably why Homer puts it so early in the text. Let's talk about the boats! And everyone's like, yeah! Tell me about all of our ancestors who went overseas and fought in this war. And notice that this is important, too, to the structure of the story. Nestor has already emphasized in at least one of his speeches how awesome those former generations were. And he will emphasize it again later. We'll talk about that more in the days to come. But Nestor is very much stressing our great-great-great-grandfathers, the ones who fought in the Trojan War, were awesome. They could do things that no man today could do. They were greater heroes, faster runners, stronger, more intelligent and cunning than anyone today is. And being able to participate in that, even a little bit, even if you were just like footnote number 25 of like random dude who only had like five boats, you better believe they're going to stand up and cheer. They're so excited for it. And you better believe that when the census taker comes around like, so how many boats did you send? They'd be like, we sent 20. No, you sent three, maybe even two. But they want to be a part of it. They want to participate. They're excited. This is who they are. This is their culture. This is them being part of the biggest, most awesome thing that has ever happened. So, again, probably not true. Probably not even a little bit true. Probably incredibly fabricated. Probably the most bullshit part of this entire poem. But the reason why it's so specific, why it dwells so long on this stuff that is otherwise so tedious and boring, is because it is really exciting to the people who, in fact, are there listening. It's not for you. It's for them. And they're thrilled about it. Same way that you get excited when you see the American team walking along on the Olympics. Like, they represent us. That's us there. So keep that in mind. Most of these names we're never going to talk about again. There will be exceptions, and I do suggest that you occasionally refer back to this when you like hear about randos getting killed in battle scenes to come. Like even in the next several chapters, we're going to get a lot of that stuff. So be on the lookout. Um, look for the names because those are important heroes. Those are important generals. Even the smallest one who only came with five ships, like. He's a big deal in some respect, and he'll probably get some significant death scene, like Godfather style, where, you know, he gets, like, hit with a spear in the eye or something, and it's this whole thing. Like, watch out for that stuff. Because, again, to the people listening, it's really exciting. My great-great-great-grandfather, or the guy who founded my town, died with honor in the Trojan War. This is hugely significant as we'll see when people are t still telling these stories, still talking about my ancestor who was, in, who was at Troy thousands of years after the fact. But we'll call it there for now. Next time we are reading books three and four. We're going to get a little bit more action, a little bit more drama, less counting names and ships and stuff. Um, so keep an eye out for themes and values. We'll talk about them more soon.